How many of you have ever played the game Risk? Yeah, a lot of you. Risk got me through law school. I don't know what it is about us young lawyers, but the idea of conquering the world seemed something that was very plausible back when we were in law school, and it just seemed up our alley. And so when I was in law school, we would get together in the Board of Barristers office, and we would play Risk on a regular basis, probably more so than was healthy for our GPA. The game of risk is one where indeed you conquer the world and you do it by taking continents. If you look at the board, the blue continent is, uh, are you all able to see that with this in the way? It's okay. Kind of blocks my view, but if it doesn't block yours, I won't worry about it. Um, the uh, uh, blue is the continent of Europe right in there and, and that is one of the hardest continents to get and to hold in the game of risk because there's too many angles to come at you from. The continent of Europe in world domination has always held particular uh, power. Uh, it doesn't have to just be in the game of risk. You can go back to Caesar's efforts to conquer Gaul. You can go to Napoleon's efforts to conquer Europe and hold Europe. Uh, Hitler's efforts to conquer and hold Europe. Uh, there's always been a, a, a constant drive to conquer Europe. Well, the first real power to conquer Europe, in my opinion, is the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to see how it happened. If we switch to a, an overhead satellite view of the, of the area of the Mediterranean Sea, you can see a line that I've put up on the PowerPoint. That line divides Europe from Asia. You've got Europe to the north and and west of that line and you've got Asia to the south and the east. Turkey, most of Turkey is considered Asia. There's a bit of modern Turkey that's actually across the Hellespont there that is considered European Turkey. But most of Turkey is in Asia and it is bothering some people, isn't it? No, you're going to... Thank you very much. So if you consider that, the gospel, as we have had it so far, up until the, the, the crossing from Troas last week, has been a gospel that everything we've read about, at least, has placed it in what we would consider Asia. Now, you think about it. If I mention to you the Orient, where do you think of as the Orient? China, Japan, and those are Oriental countries. But the Orient is also considered over into this area of Asia and down even a little bit south. In fact, if you want to go study Hebrew at Harvard University, you're in the Department of Oriental Languages. That's why this area is called the Middle East, whereas China, Mongolia, Thailand, Japan, that's the Far East, right? So we've got Asia here. Now what we had last week is Paul standing at Troas, looking out. Oops, he's looking south. He, he had eyes in the back of his head. <laughs> he was looking longingly toward home as he contemplated leaving uh, uh, the Hellespont and Paul goes to Philippi. And it is in, here's another view, if we kind of zoom in, you can now see that's mainly Greece in the screen. But if you go to the right, uh, uh, like this pointer is going to work from here, 
Um, actually, it may be, if you can see it on the center screen, you see that line right in there? That is the Hellespont. That is what divides Asia. Yeah, Asia is divided at that point from Europe. It's just that spit of water right through there, which is now Istanbul. But at the time, Paul was there at Troas. And it's from Troas that Paul looks out and eventually makes the journey. He goes to that top right island first, Samothrace, spends the night, and then comes on into Philippi, named after Philip, the uh, father of Alexander the Great. So Philippi is the journey that we had last week. Paul last week got kicked out of Philippi, and so we left last week with Paul heading from Philippi to Thessalonica. And today we're going to talk about Paul in Thessalonica, we'll talk about Paul in Berea, and we'll talk about Paul in Athens. That's the deal. Now, when Paul leaves Philippi, he does not leave Philippi alone. Paul was in Philippi, if you recall, with Timothy, Silas, and Luke, who writes the book of Acts along with the Gospel of Luke. When Paul leaves, Luke stays behind in Philippi. A lot of scholars believe Luke was actually from Philippi and practiced as a doctor in Philippi and Troas. That was his area, and he'd go back and forth. But Paul, Timothy, and Silas leave Philippi and Luke and walk 70 miles to Thessalonica. It was about a five-day walk. It's somewhere, it's about 70 miles as the crow flies, but the road, the Via Ignatia that they were on, which you can still see, in fact, it's a paved highway now that follows basically the same path as the Roman road built a couple hundred years, uh, uh, or at least a hundred years before Paul. Um, the, the Via Ignatia, they walked on that road, and because of the twists and turns, it may have been closer to 100 miles, which is why scholars say about a five-day walk. A good walker in that time covered 20 miles a day. That's a pretty good bit. That's heavy walking. Marathons are what, 26.2 miles? And you're like really doing good, at least for a fellow my age, if you finish a marathon under four hours. If I was going to run a marathon and I was to do it without a car. <laughs> I mean, with a car, 26 miles, that's what, three or four minutes. But without a car, if it's the right car, without a car, you know, that's probably a five-hour jog. And that's assuming you can do it. Oh, Paul's covering 20 miles a day probably walking. There's not a lot of time for much other than walking at that point. So they make it. When Paul goes into Thessalonica, he, as was his custom, goes to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, Paul reasons about the Old Testament and Jesus. And I love the way he does it. Paul goes through the Old Testament week after week after week. We know he's there for at least three Sabbaths. And Paul is using the Old Testament to explain about Jesus and how necessary it was for Jesus to be born, for Jesus to suffer, for Jesus to die, and for Jesus to be resurrected. And Paul's doing that from the Old Testament. I want to tell you, God never asks us, nor does He give us an example of us, um, 
God does not expect us to believe in Him blindly. Our faith is not irrational. I am not a Christian because I'm an idiot. I am not a Christian because I'm, I, I want eternal life insurance, you know, just in case. I'm a Christian because reasonably it does make sense. It makes more sense than any other worldview out there. I'm a Christian because when I read the Old Testament, which was clearly written before Christ, I see a very clear picture of Jesus. I'm reminded of a friend who read Isaiah 53 as a Jew, to, or, or to a Jew. And the Jew who's listening to it said, don't try and prove Jesus by your New Testament. I don't believe your New Testament. Only to have my friends say, well, I'm reading from the Old Testament. Because Isaiah 53 so closely mirrors the life of Christ. And Paul is out there teaching at a time where there are still hundreds of people who are alive who saw Jesus resurrected. This is not something that Paul just urges people to buy into. It's something that Paul's able to reason with people about and show them as Peter would say, to provide a, a reasonable defense of their faith, why they believe. So Paul does it. While Paul's doing this, Paul's also working as a tent maker. Now he receives gifts from the Philippians, the church he just left that he started, the church in Philippi. We know that because when Paul writes the Philippians, he thanks them for sending that help. But Paul never goes into a city and starts demanding pay for what he's teaching. Paul doesn't sell his gospel. Paul accepts gifts to help further the gospel. But Paul, this, <laughs> the Jesus thing was not a money-making adventure for Paul. Not by any stretch of the imagination. As the IRS audits and as Congress investigates a number of well-known television so-called ministries, it makes me cringe that there are people out there who are flying in. I, I, I'll never forget getting a mail out from one televangelist who said God had told him to buy these two jets, private jets. Yeah. One of them, and, and I know jets, okay? These aren't like middle-of-the-road jets. I'm talking Gulf Streams, the latest and greatest. And the fella needed $60 million because he needs not only his Gulf Stream, but when his Gulf Stream's not working or is, is in maintenance, he needs the other Gulf Stream. Yeah. But it's okay, just give your money to him because it's going to help him spread the gospel in the Gulf Stream. That makes me cringe. That makes me cringe. For Paul, the gospel was not something to make Paul rich. Paul emptied himself in honor of the gospel. Now, that said, he does receive gifts from the Philippians. He'll receive gifts from other churches, but it's after Paul shows the gospel. 
And then the gifts were never something to make Paul a rich man. The gifts were something spent. Any excess Paul would take back to Jerusalem ultimately and give to the saints there who were in need. And Paul didn't have need. Paul says to the Philippians, I've learned the secret, whether in plenty or in hunger, said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul goes, he works among the Thessalonians. This happens for a few weeks and after uh, at least three Sabbaths in the synagogue with Paul teaching and, and the Thessalonians responding, uh, um, a mob of Jews, incited at least by the Jews, descends upon the house of Jason. Jason is the house where Paul was staying. Paul's not there at the time. So the mob just arrests Jason. And they cart Jason off. And the mob says to Jason, Hey, you're now arrested. Not because you did anything wrong, but because Paul did. And we can't find him, but he was staying at your house. So we're arresting you. And before Jason can be released, Jason, who is a local, I might add, has to post bond. And that requires not only a payment of money, but it also requires Jason to basically affirm that Jason will see that Paul and Silas leave. Paul and Silas get booted out of town. So Jason does that. He gets Paul and Silas. Timothy's allowed to stay back. And so Timothy stays back and ministers some to the Thessalonians. But Paul will write the Thessalonians here in a couple of months. And he'll tell them, you know, remember how I was pulled away from you. There are some things left unsaid, some business left undone. And our hope is to cover Paul's writings. His two letters to the Thessalonians will cover not next week, but the following week. Because they come real short here, real soon. So Paul and, and uh, Silas have to leave Thessalonica and they start walking. And this is where they start walking to Berea. As the road sign says, it's about 45 to 50 miles away. Eh, about three days walk. And we don't have a lot about Berea. We have a snippet. Has anyone ever heard of a Berean Baptist church? They're all over the place. Not just Berean Baptist churches. There are Berea churches of most every ilk and denomination there is. And the reason why folks grab a hold of that name is because of this one passage in Acts. Paul and Silas go into Berea and the Bereans, Luke says were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They would take their Bibles, their scriptures, and examine them, not just on Sabbath, but every day. Every day, just pouring through the Old Testament to confirm what Paul was teaching. They were excited, they were eager, they were hungry. They were hungering and thirsting for the Word of God. That's an exciting place to be in your life. And that's why a lot of churches have grabbed that title, Berean. So Paul and Silas, Berea, what a wonderful place. It's a place that must have been soothing to their souls. 
Don't you know how excited Paul must have been to have been sharing the word with people who were so eager that they said, you know, oh, look, I'm going to read it myself. I'm going to go after it. I want to study this. I want to say, oh, look what I found yesterday, Paul. Look what, hey, hey, Paul, have you considered how Abraham sacrificing his son is a prophecy of Jesus? Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac and God stops Abraham's hand and says, don't, I will provide the sacrifice. And then God does with his own son. Have you thought about that, Paul? Have you thought about how it must have made Paul's heart leap for joy? Well, after a while in Berea, the Jews from Thessalonica get there and they start stirring up the crowd and force Paul to leave Berea. So Paul has to leave Berea. The Bereans themselves help Paul because Paul leaves apparently without Timothy at this point, without Silas, just Paul. And the Bereans help Paul get down to Athens. Now the way from Berea down to Athens, that's Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, to get to Athens, you could go by road, but most likely by boat. And there's a harbor. Athens is built on a harbor. And up on the mountain, you've got uh, uh, the Acropolis. Uh, as you come into the, the harbor in Athens, this is a recreation of what you might have seen. And up at the top of the hill, you'll see the Parthenon. The hill itself was the Acropolis. And, and Athens is a town of incredible glory. I'm not sure that Paul, growing up, ever heard of Berea. Maybe he did. I don't know. But there's no doubt in my mind Paul knew Athens. Athens was the city. It was the place. Athens was a place of such reputation and such history that when the Romans conquered it, the Romans kept Athens in a sense independent, as an independent city, just out of recognition of its history. It was in Athens in 508 B.C., that democracy first took hold. The first democratic country, if you will, our, our city, the first democratic political unity that we know of, unity, uh, uh, was the Areopagus. What I've got on the slide there, the Areopagus is, it, it means Mars Hill. Ares was the Greek name for the god Mars. The Areopagus is really this big old chunk of rock that's got stairs carved into it so that you can go up on top. It was from the Areopagus that a council was voted by the citizens of Athens to rule Athens, 508 B.C. And so from the Areopagus, the council would meet. And it's, the Areopagus is in a wonderful place for such a council to sit because it's really above the town proper. Mars Hill sits above the town proper so that you can stand on the Mars Hill and you can look out and see the Agora, the Greek marketplace. You can stand out and see the homes and, and the city, really, of Athens. The only thing of note higher than Mars Hill when you're standing there on the Areopagus is the Acropolis itself where the temples to the gods are. So the Areopagus was a great place for the ruling council to set up in Athens because it shows them ruling over the town but under the gods. See? So 
the Areopagus is where the council would rule from in 508. If you start rolling forward in the 400s, look what happened in Athens. And this is a thumbnail. If you were classical Greek scholars, we'd go into a lot more detail because uh, there's a lot more detail to go into. But in the 400s, on the Acropolis, the Parthenon itself was built. That's one of the many temples up there, but it's the big one that's most famous. It's the one you can see uh, uh, prominently with this night view. Okay? In addition to the Acropolis in the 400s, you had Socrates. Everybody heard of Socrates? That's right. And also in the 400s was born his principal pupil. Anybody have a memory? Plato. That's right. All of that in the 400s. If we roll into the 300s, in the 300s, you have Plato's prize student, who was Aristotle. Also, Aristotle was tutor to Alexander the Great. Okay? Aristotle, one of the most prolific thinkers. My, my son, right now, emailed me. My son has just finished writing a long paper on Aristotle. Aristotle is someone who from 300 B.C. is still being written on and studied in the 21st century. Aristotle wrote on physics. He wrote on metaphysics. He wrote on poetry. He wrote on music. He wrote on theater. He wrote on logic. He wrote on rhetoric. You cannot read a book on speech making today of any note at all. You cannot read a book on speech making today of any note at all that doesn't start with Aristotle. Aristotle's rhetoric. I travel around the country giving seminars on how to speak and give speeches. And without fail, I use Aristotle's rhetoric. Aristotle's rhetoric, he says there are three aspects to speech making. The Greek logos, which means logic. If you're going to speak, you need to speak coherently. Pathos, which is emotion. You need to not just speak to the mind, you need to speak to the heart. And ethos, we get the word ethics from it. You need to have credibility when you speak. The formation of speech-making goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle wrote on politics. Aristotle wrote on government. He wrote on ethics. He wrote on theology. He wrote on biology. He wrote on zoology. Pretty incredible. And we not only have Aristotle in the 300s, but we have this fellow named Epicurus. Epicurus did not agree with Aristotle on a lot of this. Aristotle went one way, Epicurus went another. We had another fellow named Zeno. And actually, Zeno predates a little bit Epicurus. They were contemporaries. But Zeno didn't follow Aristotle in a lot of ways either. Zeno deviated and went a different route as well. That's in the 300s. Now, let's fast forward. Paul arrives in Athena's city, Athens, named after the goddess Athena, Athena Nike. Do you know how to spell Nike? N-I-K-E. Anybody have a sheet of paper? I've got to start bringing paper. Can I borrow something? N-I-K-E. Athena. 
That's okay. I just didn't want one that's colored blue because my pen's blue. Athena Nike. Is this yeah. Um, Athena Nike. Nike. N I K E. Nike is Greek. It means victory. Athena Nike was the goddess of victory. And if you go, there's a temple built to her up on the, the Acropolis, up there by the Parthenon. And it's got these reliefs, and there's one picture of her with uh, uh, her, her, her symbol, winged victory. So it's got her wings. And you take her wing and you turn it upside down, and you have the Nike swoosh. That's where Nike got it from. It's the victory swoosh. It is from the Acropolis. It is the wings of Nike, of Athena Nike. So Paul arrives in Athena's city. Birthplace of some shoes. <laughs> and Paul, while he does some time in the synagogue, Paul's by himself. We haven't had Paul on mission by himself that we've been able to read about. And Paul goes to the Agora, the marketplace, where all the schools were of philosophy, where the philosophers stood around and philosophized, where all the stalls were for the markets and the sales, where the people milled around. Paul goes to the Agora, the, the heart, vibrant heartbeat of the town. And in the Agora, I'm sure his eyes were big. I mean, Paul grew up hearing about Athens, studying the byproducts of Athens. Paul had studied Socrates. Paul had studied Plato. Paul had studied Aristotle. I don't have a doubt in my mind. Paul grew up in a university town called Tarsus in Cilicia and clearly has a solid Greek education in addition to his Hebrew training in Jerusalem at Gamaliel. Paul's very conversant with the Greek. You can't read his letters without understanding that. Paul's very literate, very conversant. Paul's been hand-chosen by God, made before the womb by God for the purpose of going to, see the, the, to, to take the gospel to the Greeks. And so Paul arrives there, and I think he must have been big-eyed because Paul had seen a lot. But there's a difference between going to Pisidian Antioch and going to Athens. And so Paul goes into the marketplace and he finds some Epicureans who follow the philosopher Epicurus. He finds some Stoics who follow the philosopher Zeno and his progeny. And Paul actually engages them in conversation. Everywhere else we read about Paul, Paul has been arguing from the Old Testament scriptures to either the Jews in the synagogue or to the Greeks who are attending synagogue because they find a basis of belief there. Paul's talking to people who've probably never heard of the Old Testament and if he used the Old Testament with them, they would say, what is that? And have absolutely no regard. Paul's taking the truth of Jesus Christ into a brand new arena. He does it in the Agora, the marketplace, which was a covered walkway area in part. The Agora itself had temples in it and other buildings as well. 
But in the covered marketplace, which has been rebuilt, one of the uh, 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 stoas, one of the, the, the hall areas has been. It's like the original uh, shopping mall. But it had lots of little shops and stuff, but it also had the schools there and the philosophers who would have their area of the covered market and would teach the students who walked by or came to them. This is where the schools were held. And Paul engages the Epicureans in discussions. Let's talk about Epicureans. We still use the word today, though in a slightly different manner than it was used at the time of Paul. Epicureans were the first, not the first, but but some of the first, what we would call atomists. The Epicureans believed, uh, there's a Greek word, atomos, which is basically our word atom with A-S added at the end. The Greeks believed there was this small, or the Epicureans believed there were these small little atoms that made up all of existence that we couldn't see. And these atoms were on courses. And the courses weren't always straight. Sometimes they deviate. But this, this was matter. This was material. Epicureans are called materialists in classical philosophy because they believed everything, except the void, everything is made out of atoms or material. Everything. There's no, uns, you know, the soul is made out of atoms and material. Every, there is nothing that is uh, 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 without form in some atom sense. In this way, they differed from Plato, for example, who believed that ideas and the soul and many other things are not material. But the Epicureans believed everything is physical. Everything's material. There's nothing that's not. The gods, physical, material. Epicureans also believed that happiness or misery is based on the exercise of reason. You happy? It's because you're using your brain right. You're thinking it through. You miserable? It's because you're not using your brain right and you're not thinking it through. Epicureans went another step further and said that pleasure, happiness, is the main goal of life. This is where, by the way, we get our meaning of the word Epicurean we use today. Generally today, Epicurean means someone who's like real into good tasting foods or real into pleasure. It's almost ironic because the original Epicureans weren't really into that much pleasure The original Epicurean said, if you want to have pleasure and happiness, it'll come from thinking about things properly, which includes living pretty austere, pretty spare. You don't live in luxury. Because if you do, it'll get ripped away from you and you'll be miserable. Very few people actually get plenty. So the the happy, smart, rational person, the Epicureans taught, are the people who think that they can have happiness by the way they think, not what they have, so they live without much. Since most people don't have much, that way they can all be happy. Now, Epicureans said, sure, there are gods, but the gods really don't give a whit about humans. 
So you can look to them and, and, and know that the gods exercise their reason and are since happy and use them as an example in that way. But don't think for a moment that the gods give one care about who you are and what you're doing. They don't. And to take it another step, the Epicureans said there is no afterlife. When you're dead, you're gone. So there's no point in worrying about it. No reward, no punishment, no heaven, no hell. I should have John Lennon's song on right now. Imagine, there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, especially if you're an Epicurean. Um, Epicureans. Now, Paul starts discussing Jesus with them. Think of the differences. A God who does care about humanity. A God who does have plans for us after this life is over. A God who seeks us out. A God who's not just after our bodies, but after our souls. Paul discusses with the Epicureans, he also discusses with the Stoics. The Stoics named after Zeno. Zeno used to uh, walk around in the colonnade to teach. The rumor is he'd walk around to keep people from just getting in his space. He was a crusty guy, real sourpuss. He was the king of the one-liners. He's like Don Rickles as a <laughs> philosopher. He's the one who, I mean, he just, he just cuts people down with these one-liners all the time while he's pacing. Some kids started talking, and it's Zeno who first said, at least to my understanding, who first said, you've got two ears and one mouth. That's the reason you should be listening more than you talk. I mentioned that to Dr. Bob last night, and he said, based on that theory, pass the food, because I've got more teeth than I have ears, and I should be eating a lot. Uh-huh. Zeno paces in the colonnade. By the way, do you know the Greek word for colonnade? Stoa. That's why they're called Stoics, because they're the colonnade pacers. Zeno said... Get rid of all emotion. Emotion is to be avoided. It is, quote, an irrational and unnatural movement in the soul. He would have made a good Vulcan. No emotions. The four big areas of emotion that are to be avoided, fear, grief, desire, and pleasure. Get rid of them. And it's interesting to contrast this. As Paul was talking to the Stoics, Paul worships a God who is to be feared. Paul worships a God who says there is a time to grieve. Paul worships a God who shed tears at the death of Lazarus. Paul worshiped a God whose desire is for the hearts of men to seek him. Paul worshipped a God who takes pleasure and delight in his children. And Paul engages the Stoics. The Stoics have a God, but their God is some rational, fate, earth fire, they call him. That's a part of everything. It's not a personal, 
intimate God. It's some life force that is a part of every atom. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics aren't too happy with this, so they take Paul before the Areopagus Council. Whether that actually met at the Areopagus at this point in time or met in the Agora, scholars differ on. But it was the Areopagus that he was taken before. The council that took its name after the hill where they originally started. And there Paul gives them his speech. Let's listen to Paul. It's interesting. The way Luke writes it, he uses a Greek phrase that Paul stood in their midst, but the standing in their midst is Paul taking the stance of an orator, a philosopher. Paul takes the stance of an orator and says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. Paul does not start out saying, Well, you're all going to hell if you don't do something different. Paul starts out not on the opposite side of the table, but he strikes a pose that they were familiar with, and he starts out with something that they all shared in common. He compliments them. He says, I perceive that in every way you are religious. Then he says, whoops, I got ahead of myself. Then he says, you know, I couldn't help but notice. And as you stand there at the Areopagus, you look up and there are all these temples. The Parthenon, the temple to Athena Nike, up there on the, the, the hill, the Acropolis. Then down in the Agora, in the marketplace, there are all these other temples. There's this big old temple to Zeus over there. So Paul says, I perceive that you're religious. I've seen all of these temples. I even found a temple to an unknown God. He says, let me tell you about it. Because what, therefore, you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let me tell you about your unnamed God. This is the God who made the world and everything in it. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. And since He's Lord of heaven and earth... He doesn't live in these temples made by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to everyone life and breath and everything, he doesn't need us to give him things. Now at this point, the Stoics would be agreeing with Paul. The Stoics would say, you know, this makes sense, of course. And the Epicureans may not be agreeing with him so much, but they probably were. The Epicureans and the Stoics are at least appreciating the fact that Paul is thinking through this logically. He's very rational. Paul says, you know, think about it, guys. The God who made everything, do you really think he needs us to make him a house? A temple to offer him sacrifices. Does God need something from us when he gave us the breath that we have and the life that we have and he's created everything? Of course he doesn't. And then he goes further. Paul says, and God made from one man every nation on the face of all the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. God has set all of this up. Every nation, every creed, me a Jew, you a Greek, same God. And here's where he deviates from them. 
Paul says that the reason God did that is so that all humanity, everybody, any period, any place, all would seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. So the Epicureans who said, God has no regard for humans. Paul says, oh, contraire. He made humans. He didn't make them to ignore them. He's provided all of this for us. He didn't provide all of this for us so that we could be absorbed in our own little world because he has no regard for us. And I could say the same thing to each one of us here today. God has not put you where you are on this earth because he has no regard for you. He's put you where you are on this earth because he has regard for you and regard that you find him and find your life and your sustenance in him. Paul goes further and says, and he's actually not far from each of us. For, and here Paul quotes, we think Epimenides, but we're not sure because we don't have the originals of Epimenides to, uh, that would have this in it. But early scholars, New Testament scholars like um, church fathers say that Paul's quoting Epimenides. They had it in their possession. It says, in him we live and move and have our being. Then Paul goes and quotes Aratus, And we do have this. Uh, if anybody wants to see it, I brought it. Aratus. Paul quotes Aratus as a poet. Paul says, as even some of your poets have said, indeed, we are his offspring. That's in the tribute to Zeus at the start of Aratus's poem, Phenomenon, which is... Uh, Basically about the heavens and the heavenlies and the constellations and all. Interesting, Aratus was, while a Greek poet, was born in Cilicia, right down the road from Tarsus where Paul was, 300 years earlier. Paul knew his scholastics. He knew his Greek literature. He's able to quote the Greeks to the Greeks and say, these ideas that I've got, they're not, they may not be part of your philosophy, but they're not foreign to what you've been taught. And then he brings it home by saying, God has fixed a day for judging the world in righteousness by an appointed man, Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead. God made us. God cares about us. God calls us to him. And there will come a day where God will make a judgment. And we have that affirmed to us by the fact that God has sent Jesus, who loves us and calls us and who has been raised from the dead that we might also. It's an incredible message that actually through that message, God wins the hearts of several people. Luke names two of them, but says it's two among several. And God must rejoice. Don't the angels in heaven rejoice over the finding of just one soul? And this is something brand new. Now, next week, we go to Corinth, that nasty little sailor's town of sin. So if you want to read ahead, 248 to 263 in your Bruce books. Points for home. I think about Jason, and he gets thrown in jail because of Paul. 
I think about how sometimes our hardships are because of what others do. It's not even something we did ourselves, and yet we're bearing the brunt of it. And all I can do is encourage you, if that's happening in your life right now, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the same passage where Jesus later says, because God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Point for home two. Um, Let's be like the Bereans who were of more noble than those in Thessalonica, more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Let's receive the word with eagerness. Let's study it. Let's read it. Let's, let's be excited still about this book. And then final point. We were made to know and to relate to God. I mean that in the Greek sense or the Hebrew sense of the word know, which is an intimate relationship. I mean, Adam knew his wife and they conceived and bore a son. It's a reference in the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, to a very intimate closeness. And that's why Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they, which is us, know you. Be intimately related to God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Because that's what gives our life meaning. That is the meaning of our life. That's happiness. It's not merely in rational thinking. It's not avoiding emotion. The fullness of the human being is found in God and Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for being a God who cares. We praise you as a God who is beyond the... the, Ideas of God that man has concocted just by looking in themselves. And we thank you for the revelation of who you are. Not only through your word, but through Jesus Christ, your eternal word. And thank you that we get to read and study and consider it. I pray that you will blaze your your light into the hearts of everyone in this room that that might understand the, the depths and the riches of your grace and your love for us through your son, Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen.